God, we confess to you this morning that we love your word, or we echo what the psalmist says, that your word is like honey to our lips. God, we desire it. We feel a type of, of satisfaction deep in our souls when we read it and we study it. And God, we need it today, or we confess that so often we think we know what we want, we think that we know what we need, but we don't. God, you know what we need. And so God, I pray that you would show us through your word this morning, Lord, what it means to be the body of Christ, what it means to be called to the church, or give us open hearts, open ears, and give us understanding through your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I should raise your hand if you have been enjoying the Olympics uh, so far this summer. I know I always look forward to it every you know, four years, just looking at these amazing athletes who really for most of them, they've trained their entire lives for this moment. And the amount of pressure that they feel of training and training and training and then trying to perform really in front of the whole world as the world watches is unbelievable. Um, I, I love watching all of the games, like the 100 meter uh, run is unbelievable. The fact they can do that in less than 10 seconds, like that's crazy. Uh, and sometimes we, we miss how fast that they are. We, we miss how incredible the Olympians are. In fact, somebody once said that just for perspective's sake, we should throw up just an average person in every competition just to see in perspective how great the Olympians are. Like imagine if, if any one of us ran that 100 meter or we got up on, you know, the, the gymnastics bar, like how long we'd actually last, you know, and, and just to give, give us a sense of perspective. Well, one of the things that I've enjoyed about the Olympics is just seeing the difference between the individual competitions and then the team sport competitions. There is a huge difference. With the individual competitions, it's really up to you. And there's a, a unique kind of pressure and weight that those athletes feel. In a team sport, it's very evident that they need one another in order to perform well. And you see that throughout the different sports. You see that in volleyball and basketball and soccer and, and rowing. In fact, those teammates, they have this connection and this, this understanding of working together in order to get the most out of that team. I don't know if you noticed, but the, the 4-100 uh, relay race, the U.S. men's team in the final, they, they botched uh, that baton pass, and it literally cost them. Like, their kind of failure to work together as a team led them to not winning that race, uh, or if you see the, the water polo, that's been one of my favorite sports to watch. I, I watch water polo in like 10 seconds and I notice myself like I'm breathing heavy. Like I'm just like, I'm, I'm exhausted just watching them. Like I don't know how they do that without drowning. But if you notice like each member of that team like has an indispensable role. You take any one of those members out and they're not going to win. They're not gonna maximize their team. And I love that because you see that, that interdependence and, and the beauty of teamwork, that's not only impressive for us to watch, but I think that the church can learn something about how to work together as a team. See, what you will not find in the Olympics on some of these team competi competitions is a member of the team saying to their teammates, I don't need you and you don't need me. I'm going to do this alone. Right, imagine the two-on-two -two sand volleyball. If, if the teammate says, hey, why don't you go take a seat? I'm gonna, I'm gonna serve and I'm gonna do everything else. Right, that just doesn't work. You just don't see that happening. And it's because they are convinced 
that we can actually do more together. It's this we before me mentality that leads to, to greater effectiveness and greater accomplishment. And I bring that up because I think that the Apostle Paul had something similar in mind when he was writing to the church in Corinth here in chapter 12. Paul here is using a metaphor, not of a team, but of a body. It's very similar in the fact that in a body, you have all kinds of different members, and yet it's one body. It's a very simple metaphor. Even as I was reading the passage, you can understand kind of the implications within the church, and yet it has some powerful truths about what it means to be united, what it means to, to live with one another within the church, and to protect us from division. So this morning, I'm gonna walk through this passage, and I want us to see why the body of Christ is a beautiful gift. I think there are four reasons why the body of Christ is a beautiful gift. Here's the first one. In verses 12 through 14, we have a Jesus-centered unity, a Jesus-centered unity. As you begin looking at this passage with me in verse 12, one of the aspects that's really important to understand is that Paul is actually using this passage to better unpack and explain the passage that came before us. So last week, we looked at spiritual gifts, verses four through 11, about how all of these spiritual gifts have been given to different people within the church. Well, Paul is gonna build off that, and he's gonna help the Corinthians understand how all of these spiritual gifts can work together that leads to unity and harmony. And you can see the way that these two passages are linked together with the word for in verse 12. Paul says in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. This is Paul's thesis statement for the entire passage. And you notice he first introduces the body metaphor. Now throughout the New Testament, uh, there are several different kinds of metaphors that are used to describe and explain the church. All throughout the New Testament, you're gonna see metaphors like the church as a family or a marriage bride or a building or a flock. But I think the most helpful metaphor and the most commonly used metaphor is that of a body. You see it in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 10. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, Colossians 1, they, they all use this body metaphor to unpack and explain the church. Now, something you need to know, though, is the way that Paul uses this metaphor, he's using it to help explain to the Corinthians how a church can have all kinds of different individuals with different backgrounds, different experiences, and different spiritual gifts and yet they can be unified and live in harmony. Now with this metaphor, you need to know that this is not just some cute picture about the church. Sometimes we read chapter 12, even as I was reading it, and we can kind of take a step back and think, oh man, that, that's such a beautiful picture of the church. The church is a body, that makes sense. That's really encouraging. And yet the way that Paul is using this metaphor, it has a punch to it. He's using it to the Corinthians here as a way to convict them, as a way to challenge them, and as a way to exhort them because the church at Corinth was not unified. This is a church 
that had an individualistic mindset that was leading to all kinds of division. And so as we read and understand this metaphor, yes, it's a beautiful picture of the church, and yet it is one that we should open ourselves up to and ask the Lord where it might convict us today. Now, don't skip over verse 13. Verse 13 is a confusing verse, but it is really important in understanding how unity in the church can actually exist. Verse 13 does not mean that you receive the Spirit when you are baptized or when you take communion. That would go against several other passages of Scripture throughout the New Testament of when you receive the Spirit. And in fact, if you want to learn more about the role of the Spirit, we just did a four-week sermon series on the Spirit in July. You can look those up to learn more. But verse 13, what Paul means here is that what makes the church one, even though there are different individuals, is their common experience of the Spirit. It's the very Spirit who is responsible for and manifested in the various kinds of spiritual gifts that he just got done talking about in verses four through 11. And not only that, but it is the reception of the Spirit, receiving the Spirit that essentially distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian. Practically speaking, what separates you from the world is that God through the Spirit lives inside of you, that it's the Holy Spirit that marks the beginning of the Christian life, according to Galatians 3. It's the Holy Spirit that makes a person a child of God, according to Romans 8. And so when you take a step back and you look at verse 13 here and the emphasis on receiving the Spirit, you have to understand what Paul is doing here. Paul, in explaining the unity of the church, does not begin emphasizing where this church is different, where there is diversity, but the way that Paul begins explaining the unity of the church is by emphasizing their common experience of conversion, their common experience of being saved, their common experience of, of having their sins forgiven, having the, this common experience of receiving the Holy Spirit, that that is the foundation for their unity. And it's also important to emphasize this morning that we receive the Holy Spirit because of the blood of Jesus. Now, sometimes you might hear unbelievers, I know I have, talk about how Christians are, are a little gory. They're a little bit strange. They, they emphasize the blood of Jesus so much. They talk about the death of Jesus. That's quite strange. I remember uh, I was on a mission trip to Scotland one year and, uh, and we were doing street evangelism. And I saw this elderly woman who was sitting on the bench looking out at the Royal Mile there in Edinburgh. It was this beautiful scene. I sat down next to her and started talking to her about faith, talking about Christianity, about the gospel. And I was unpacking for her what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And she turned to me in her Scottish accent, which I won't impersonate this morning. But she says to me, why do Christians focus so much on death, on blood? And she was really hung up about how strange that is. Well, church, this morning, you need to be reminded that the reason why we emphasize the blood of Jesus so much is because Jesus' blood is not a normal kind of blood. It is a saving blood. 
This is a redeeming kind of blood. The blood of Jesus washes us clean of our sin and our shame and our guilt. It is a thick kind of blood that actually covers your shame, that covers your condemnation and washes you white as snow. This morning, be reminded that without the shedding of Jesus's blood, which by the way, he died on the cross for your sins. He took your place on the cross. Without the shedding of his blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no salvation. There is no receiving of the Holy Spirit. Look, because of our sin, because God is just, there had to have been a punishment. God could not have just overlooked our sins without someone dying. And Jesus stepped in. Jesus took your place, took our place, sinners' place on the cross of Calvary for our salvation. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. That's why he offers free gift of eternal life. He offers forgiveness. He offers a life free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from shame for those who put their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone and declare that Jesus is king. Look, that is the gospel message. That is the good news. That is what we hang our hat on. And yet the gospel is not just something that saves us, but the gospel actually impacts our unity. See, what I mean by that is that if you're here today and you have trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, you actually have the same story with other Christians in this room. Yes, the details of your story vary, but the overview of your story is essentially the same, that you were a sinner. You were wandering this world looking for satisfaction, looking for the longings of your heart to be satiated in something or someone only to come empty-handed. And then Jesus rescued you. Then Jesus stepped in and he rescued you from the pit of your sin, the pit of despair. He gave you the gift, the gift of faith and he saved you. And, and that story is basically the same as everybody else's story who is a Christian in this room. So you might look around right now and you might see a lot of differences in this room. When you look around, you might see uh, age differences, that some are young and some are more seasoned. You might see people in different life stages where some are single, some are married. You might look and see that some are wealthy or some are not so wealthy. You might see different skin colors, some are lighter, some are darker. You might see that some have different spiritual gifts. Some are gifted here, some are gifted over there. And yet those differences are not what unites us. What unites us is Jesus. What unites us is the blood of Jesus that he spilled for us. What unites us, church, is that we all have the same rescuer and his name is King Jesus. He is what unifies us. He is what makes us one. And by his death on the cross, we receive the spirit. This is how Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter two. This is a beautiful passage. He says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's everybody in this room, have been brought near by what? 
by your good works, by your church attendance, by because you are a nice person? No, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What a beautiful, beautiful passage on unity. One thing to point out about this passage is look, you and I, we don't create that unity. Jesus has, Jesus already did through his blood. It's an objective unity. But if you put your faith in Jesus, you receive the spirit of God, verse 13, that now actually links you with other Christians. And through the power of the spirit, you can actually live out the unity that Jesus has made possible through the blood of Christ in his one body. We have a Jesus-centered unity that is so beautiful in the church. Well, not only that, but the second uh, gift that, that we see in this passage, and there is a misprint on this uh, on this sermon, so I apologize for that, but it should read the surprising value of diversity, not unity, of diversity in verses uh, 15 through 20. If you look at verse 14 for a moment, Paul says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. All right, and then in verses 15 through 20, Paul then goes on to describe that the many are all different. Within the body metaphor, he talks about the hands and the feet and the head and the eyes. And, and we can understand you know, the toes and, and the fingers and the elbows and the knees and, and, and everything else. What is so interesting about this passage is that Paul's primary concern here is not trying to argue for unity because we have all kinds of diversity. That's not his primary concern. His primary concern here is he's arguing and holding up the beauty of diversity because we are one in the body of Christ. His argument here is even though we are one in the body, that does not mean there's only one body member. And I call it a surprising value because sometimes we think unity means uniformity. Sometimes we think unity means we all look the same. We have the same function, the same gifts, the same roles. And yet that's not true biblical unity within the body of Christ. And you can see this point in this kind of silly dialogue in verses 15 through 17 as the body parts are kind of talking to each other. Paul is basically saying that the foot cannot pout and complain and say, well, I guess because I'm not a hand, I don't belong here. Or the, the ear cannot throw a pity party and say, well, I'm not the eyes, I guess I don't belong here. Or verse 17, Paul basically saying, imagine if the body was just one body part. Imagine how silly that would be. Imagine if we were just a bunch of, of feet, you know, as a body. Imagine trying to, to dig your cell phone out of your pocket for a moment if all you were was just, you were just a foot. Or if you had that cell phone and you were just a tongue. Imagine trying to text with just your tongue. That's not a challenge to attempt right now. The point of this metaphor, Paul is holding up 
the beauty and the value of diversity within unity and it not uniformity within unity. Again, the goal is not to all have the same spiritual gift. It's not to all look the same. Verse 19, it says, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Look, diversity within unity actually deepens the beauty and the effectiveness that is within the body of Christ. Here's an analogy of a, of a choir by John Piper where he writes, more depth of beauty is felt from a choir that sings in parts than from a choir that sings only in unison. Unity in diversity is more beautiful and more powerful than the unity of uniformity. This carries over to the untold differences that exist between the peoples of the world. When their diversity unites in worship to God, the beauty of their praise will echo the depth and greatness of God's beauty far more than if the redeemed were only from a few different people groups. Look, the way that this gets played out, if you think about the relationship of the world to the church, when the world looks at the church and notices the biblical diversity that takes place with different ages, different life stages, different skin colors, different gifts, and so on and so forth, and they look at the church and they say, how are you guys unified? This makes zero sense, how you're so different and yet you live in harmony. The church's response to that is to point to Jesus. It's because of the gospel. It's because the power of the gospel unites people from all kinds of different backgrounds and makes them one. See, if the world were looked to a church that is just basically the same. There's uniformity. We have a bunch of 40-year-olds who are white and they're middle class and they have the same gift of, of encouragement, for example. The world will look at that and say, oh, I understand that. That, that makes sense to, to us. We, we have that type of unity in all kinds of different ways in the world. We've got the bike club and the book club and all kinds of things where your unity is based on your commonality in life stage or interest. The church's unity is rooted in Jesus Christ, no matter the diversity that exists throughout the church. And I think this speaks into why we have one of our church-wide core values. We are united in Christ and diverse. Probably saw that up there on the wall. What we mean by that is that our, our unity in Jesus is primary. It is our identity. It's who we are, and it is objective, but that doesn't mean that our diversity magically goes away or that we downplay our diversity. No, in fact, our diversity within the body of Christ enhances and deepens the unity that we experience in Jesus. I love that our church, we have different ages here. We have different life stages, single, married. We have different spiritual maturity levels, different spiritual gifts, different skin colors, different socioeconomic statuses. I love that because when the young learns from the old and the old learns from the young, that is beautiful. When men and women can actually work together in complementary ways, that is beautiful. When there is unity among people with different skin colors, when there is harmony, no matter what the culture around us says, that is powerful and that speaks to the depth and the beauty that we have in Jesus Christ. Look, diversity here, biblically speaking, 
deepens the unity that we get to experience in Jesus, and it is a value within the body of Christ. Well, the third way I think that there is beauty in the body of Christ is the, this idea of interdependence, the necessity of interdependence. If you look at verses 21 through 26, Paul now starts talking about not only the eyes and the head and, and the feet and, and the hands here, but he also starts to talk about parts of the body that are hidden, those parts that are unpresentable, uh, th- those, pa- those body parts that uh, seemingly go unnoticed or they might be somewhat hidden. Uh, many people believe that Paul is referencing internal organs here. And his point is simple, it's clear. Every body part is valuable. Every body part is indispensable. Like just because you can't see your lungs or your heart doesn't make that uh, less valuable. Every part has a vital role within the body in making it healthy and to thrive. And the same is true within the church. Like you might think that you don't have an important role in the church you might feel like you are the pinky toe. But according to God's word here, you have an indispensable role. You might think that just because of your age, whether you're young or whether you're old or seasoned, excuse me, that you don't have an important role. That is not biblically true at all. And that is a lie from our enemy. And I love these verses because specifically speaking, I think these verses here speak into two dangerous mentalities that tend to creep into the church. I see this all the time. The the first dangerous mindset that creeps into the church basically says, you don't need me, right? It says, I don't really belong here. I don't have a significant role. I'm not that spiritually gifted. There are other people who are more spiritually effective than I am. I look around at this church and, and there aren't apparent needs, I don't really have a role to play, right? And that type of mindset tends to cause the individual to recline and they become more of an observer, more of a spectator rather than a participant. And I think what's closely attached to that mindset is self-pity. I mean, just to call a spade a spade, like it is filled with, with kind of this pity party about how they're gifted or not gifted, And self-pity is actually a fruit of pride. That pride focuses on me. It says, I'm not that gifted. I'm not good enough. I don't have an important role to play. It's me, me, me. And this is very closely connected to that comparison trap. We talked about this last week. When, When you compare your gifts with other people, and you try to evaluate who you are in light of comparing with others, that is a dangerous trap. Look, if you are trying to find your worth by comparing yourself with other people, that will always lead you down to the prison of despair and self-pity and pride. And I think that this mindset is dangerous because it keeps that individual from using their gift and therefore robbing the body of Christ from edifying them with their gifts. And yet not only that, the other dangerous aspect of that is it's actually questioning the sovereign creator of the universe. It is questioning God who formed you 
and who gifted you. And with this mindset, it kind of puts into question, I wonder, did God make a mistake in how he made me? And we don't really say that out loud, but with this mindset, it's, it's man, I think God may have messed up with me. I'm not gifted this way like I ought to be gifted. And it puts into question God's sovereign creator and role in your life. It's a dangerous path to go down. Secondly, though, I think these verses also address another dangerous way of thinking about the body of Christ, which says, I don't need others. Right? So if the first one is, you don't need me, this one says, I don't need you. And this is also rooted in pride. This is a prideful individualism that basically says, I've been walking with the Lord for decades. I, I know how to follow Jesus. I, I've, got, I've got the Bible, I've got the Holy Spirit, and I'm good. I don't need anybody else to speak into my life. And that is a dangerous mindset to have. Both of these mentalities are rooted in pride. I don't need you and you don't need me. But then there's this third aspect that makes it challenging to live in the body of Christ. And you probably noticed this, we're also fighting the constant cultural message around us that is me-centered. This cultural message whose gospel is centered on this individual authenticity that declares, be true to yourself, right? You hear this all the time in the world around us. Find your worth from within. You are the final voice of authority. You determine what is true. You are the center of the universe. It's me, 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 me. And that is a dangerous mentality when it starts to creep into how we think about the body of Christ and your individual role within the body of Christ. I bring that up this morning because it's important to know that the strategy of Satan is to inflate you in order to destroy you. God's strategy is to deflate you in order to use you. That pride comes before the fall. But what does God do to those who humble themselves? God exalts them. And in God's infinite wisdom, God has decided to put you and to put me in this thing called the church, in this thing called the body of Christ, where we need one another, where there is this interdependence upon one another in order to humble us, in order to think, I am not autonomous, I am not you know, kind of removing myself from needing other believers speaking into my life. Look, I know that we are saved as individuals, but we are not saved for individualism. And there is a huge difference between the two, that each person has an important role and we need one another. Look, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, pastor, I, I think I'm with you so far. I think I'm understanding this, this body metaphor that we need each other. But you might be wondering, how does this work practically? Like you say that we need each other, but in what ways do we need each other? Well, let me give you a couple of ways that interdependence works itself out. I think we need each other, number one, for obedience. We need each other for obedience. You might think, well, how so? Well, throughout the New Testament, there are over 59 different one another commands. Love one another, serve one another, encourage one another. 
That is impossible for you to obey and be faithful in when you isolate yourself from the body of Christ and you fail to live out this idea of interdependence. So we need each other for obedience. Secondly, we need each other for encouragement. Look, you are not a robot. You are human. You have frailties. You have seasons of dry spells spiritually. And we all have that. You have seasons in your life where you look at God's word and you say, I don't really need that right now. I don't have a desire to read the Bible right now. We all have seasons in our lives where we're praying feels weird to us. We feel like, is prayer even working right now? And so because we're all human, we all have those seasons. We need other believers to speak life-giving words over our lives. Look, it is impossible, impossible to over-encourage one another. We all need kind of an attaboy or an girl from time to time. Look, parents, grandparents, you need to specifically speak life-giving, encouraging, specific words of life over your kids in order to ground them in who God says that they are. Look, we all need those believers in our lives who come alongside of us and specifically point out how God is at work in our lives because sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we're so focused on where he's not working or where we're failing or why we're so dry. And yet other believers can affirm, no, God's grace is evident here and here and here. We need other believers in order to help carry our burdens. We need other believers to say, keep going, keep pressing on, don't give up. So we need one another for encouragement. We also need one another for repentance, for this idea of pursuing godliness. Look, everyone has blind spots. Everybody has areas of their lives that you may not be aware of that you need a loving brother or sister in Christ to point out in a gracious way. We all need that. And we need help to be daily repenters, which means you need to give other believers in your life the permission to speak into your life. You need other people to, to have permission to put their arm around you and say, hey, brother, sister, I'm seeing these areas of your life that's falling short of godliness. How can I help you? How can I pray for you? If you don't have that in your life, that is a dangerous place to be as being kind of a, a lone ranger Christian living in isolation. We need one another to speak that type of, of life to us. And then another way is spiritual growth. I can't tell you how many times I'll just ask another believer, hey, how is God working in your life? And I just sit back and, and I just receive really God's grace through that individual. I am so spurred on and encouraged when I hear how God's at work in someone else's life that oftentimes becomes a catalyst for me in growing and pursuing the Lord. Look, interdependence is a necessity for all these reasons, but notice Paul adds another reason. Look at verse 25. Interdependence is amazing for obedience, encouragement, repentance, spiritual growth, but also to deal with division that we have been given interdependence to show equal concern and care for one another. Well, how does this work? Well, if you've noticed, the closer you get with other believers, right, the more intimacy that's developed, the more you're gonna have conflict, right? If you're married, you know that's true. If you're in a small group, you know that's true. Like, you can settle for maybe a superficial kind of unity, 
where you don't really go that deep, you don't really share deep and personal things or share what you really think about this this view or that view, or you can have a deep kind of unity that is rooted in kind of Jesus, but in how you talk about your disagreeing views and, and differing ideas about things. That's a deeper kind of unity and intimacy. When there is division, division occurs when there is a disagreement And what's behind the division is this mindset of, I don't really need you. I don't really need you. I'm fine without you. So I'm going to create this division. I'm going to have this this heated disagreement with you. And I'm not going to even work at working this out with you because I'm kind of fine without you. I've got these other people. I've got the Bible. I've got the Holy Spirit. And so I don't need to work this out with you. Interdependence, when you truly believe that you need one another. What this says to someone that you have a disagreement with is I need you, you need me, let's work this out. Let's show grace, let's be patient with one another, let's root our unity in Jesus and figure out a way to move forward. Like interdependence is a necessity within the body of Christ. Then finally, the fourth I think a reason why the body of Christ is a beautiful gift is we see the sovereign orchestrator of it all. I, I love, love the emphasis on God throughout this passage. Let me point out a couple of examples. Verse 18, it says that God arranged these things. Verse 24, that God has composed these things. Verse 28, God has appointed these things. Like, I love this because God is, is not this bystander just observing how the body of Christ is going to unfold. He doesn't have this hands-off posture towards the church. No, it's God who has this sovereign role in specifically assigning who the teachers are, who the apostles, who the prophets are. He's the one through the Spirit who gives out the gifts listed in verse 28 So God is this divine orchestrator who is putting people together within the body of Christ with intentionality and with purpose. I think we see this idea in Ephesians chapter three, where Paul says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Notice, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't God's sovereignty amazing? What he's saying here is that before the beginning of time, God's eternal purpose was to use the church, this beautiful mess, to display the manifold wisdom of God to others. That's incredible. And what this means is that you are here at Pennington Park Church, not by accident. It is not random that you are even here this morning. This is not just by happenstance that you walked in today or that you're part of of Pennington Park Church. No, God has sovereignly orchestrated the things in your life to lead you to being at this church at this time. That out of all the peoples of the world, out of all the churches in the world, out of all the places and time periods, you are here right now. And the question is, why? Why you, why here, and why right now? 
why the gift that God has given you spiritually and the needs that we have in, in this church? Well, the answer to those questions is because we need you. God has, has drawn you in here, not for you to be a, an observer, but he's gifted you to participate in what he's doing in this church right now in this season. And so look, we need you, and also you need us in order to live out faithfully what God has called you to, that God has spiritually gifted you to edify other believers and to bring glory to Jesus Christ. So you've been spiritually gifted as we talked last week, and there are so many ways to express your spiritual gift, sometimes in, in, in unorganized ministries of the church as you're doing life with people, absolutely. But, and sometimes in organized ministries, you can use your gifts in the church. And I just wanna make you aware of these serve cards that are on the table at the Next Steps uh, table out there in the lobby. You can pick one of these because it lists different opportunities that our church has for you to use your gifts. These are needs in our church that we're coming before you and saying, can you step up? Can you fill a role and use your gift in order to edify the church and bring glory to Jesus? Just, I just wanna challenge you to take one of those cards, pray over it, and see how the Lord might lead you and use you for the betterment of our church. Look, we need you, and, and you need the body of Christ. We have this beautiful unity in Jesus, and we have various gifts, various backgrounds in order to display the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you that the church is your idea. We thank you and we praise you for really the cost that Jesus, Lord, demonstrated on the cross for making the church a reality, that he spilled his blood in order for the church to be born. We thank you that we have a, a deep unity because of Jesus, a, a unity that the world cannot construct without you. God, I pray for us as a church. I pray that you would deepen our unity. I pray that you would help us to understand our unique role and the indispensable gift that you've given us. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to bring glory to your name and to edify others, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.